This is episode 66 of the Immunology Podcast, Immune Cell Interactions with Dr. Sophia Liu. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Roud. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast. We have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Immunology Podcast, rate us and leave us a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Sophia Liu from the Ragon Institute on the podcast to talk about her research on immune cell interactions and tissues. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up. But first... It's almost time. Almost there. IUIS 2023. We'll see you in South Africa at the International Congress of Immunological Societies happening in less than a month. Jason, so excited. You, we, you know, dear listeners, you can check out the program and choose which sessions to attend at IUIS2023.org. I am really looking forward to the visit. I am not looking forward to that flight. Oh, ah, it's the first time that you cross, you know, two hemispheres, to the east, to the west, to the south, to the north. At once, yes. I haven't done, I have not done a, a twofer in one trip before. I've done up and down and left and right. I just haven't done diagonal before. <laughs> Don't worry, you'll survive. I can, you know, you, you can trust me. I've done it many times. Yeah, that's because I'm getting a bougie little place to sleep. So I don't have arthritis when I get there. Yeah, we already know you're getting business or whatever. We don't want to know, you know, most of our listeners will be flying economy. So, you know, get a get a grip, Jason. Just be nice. I, I have to be able to walk when I get there. I'm old. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. We need the stem cell podcast to tell me what to inject in my hip so that I can regenerate all my cartilage that's clearly gone. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. So very excited. So where should IUIS be? Uh, I think it's every two years, the conference, or if I don't know how, how often it is. I either want New Zealand, Japan, or Italy. Those are my three places I want to visit next. <laughs> Just exactly the same places. So yeah, Japan or Italy. Okay, for different reasons, I guess. Well, no, the same reason, food, food and culture. I would love New Zealand. Food and different culture, but I want to go for the food and culture. I mean, you do know that New Zealand are called Kiwis, but there's not like, there's a lot of Kiwis there. But I want to go to New Zealand to see the Lord of the Rings stuff. Yeah, of course you do. You know, actually, we had a, we had a marathon, uh, Lord of the Rings extended, extended versions marathon at home. When um, did you do that to yourself and why? I will, to be honest, my boyfriend did. I just uh, watched uh, the first and then I had stuff to do because I have things to achieve. On I mean, is that like days. over 24 hours? No, it was like 12 hours. It was not that bad. They left right after midnight. You know what's longer than 12 hours? The flight from, <laughs> from the U.S. to South Africa. Oh, my God. You know what? Dear listeners, please. Uh, do comment on our Twitter feed how long your flight to IOS 2023 will take so that Jason stops whining about having to take a long flight for once in his life. You are just too used to going, you know, just the transatlantic U.S. route. You forget that the world is big. I fly to Hawaii, not, not infrequently. And from Boston, from the East Coast to Hawaii is East Coast to L.A., then L.A. to Hawaii. That's about 13 hours of trip. So I've done it with small children. It's just not one flight. Then he was like 40 hours. <laughs> he felt he was 14, but he felt like 40. Oh. There was a five hour layover at LAX. LAX. Oh, God. Actually, I don't know. Is it? I, I have to say that American, usually American uh, airports, I don't like them too much. I had a very disappointing experience in places like LaGuardia are horrible. I don't know how LAX it compares to it. I love the Yotel in Amsterdam. We went to France. We flew um, Philly to Amsterdam and then Amsterdam to Bordeaux instead of driving. And there was this Yotel. And so we just rented one of those by the hour hotel rooms where like, like the toilet and shower were like one unit type of like if your feet went into the shower the toilet and like the bed could flip up and the chair could come out. It's kind of cool and robotic, but like my wife and I just passed out in the hotel for a couple hours. I mean, that's the whole point. And this one level of, uh, uh, you know, on top of like capsule hotels. So I think, I think it's good. Oh yeah. Yeah. The hotel was great. All right. Am I, am I going first again? Usual. We have still have an obligatory, but not COVID coronavirus, non COVID. Oh, is what? there such a thing? There Please are. Please tell me more. 
Did you know the common cold or some of the common colds are caused by coronaviruses? Oh, no. Oh, but, no. My life is a lie. But wait, there's more. We don't know a lot about all of them, but we've decided it may be good to learn more. So in today's news, uh, in a Nature paper accepted October 18th, 2023, it's not actually released yet. It is TMPRSS2 is a functional receptor for human coronavirus HKU1. First author is Neil Saunders. Last author is Olivier Schwartz. So high level here, there's a bunch of viruses that cause, um, oh, and excuse me, the other co-last author is Julian Buchreiser. So the caveat of this is all that lots of viruses cause the common cold. Uh, of the coronaviruses, there's HKU1, 229E, NL63, and OC43. And kind of in a post-COVID world, we're like, oh my God, we should probably learn more about coronaviruses. And we kind of figured out how to monitor all types of viruses much more rapidly and build some infrastructure. People are starting to look at other things that make people sick, like the common cold. And one of these is this HKU1. And we know that angiotensin converting enzymes Two, that's how what COVID uses, is used by 229E, and other ones use a combined spikes, combined cells through acetylated salicylic acid, but the protein receptors for endocytosis aren't known. And so they found in this paper that transmembrane serin protease 2, TMPRSS2, is the receptor that does it. And now I'm done. Um, so, so th that's what they found. That is really is the punchline. Um, the paper really is a study on how they showed that using um, combinations of knockouts, pseudoviruses that had it or didn't, cells that had the receptor and didn't. They um, use they made nanobodies. If you don't know what nanobodies are, they use llama nanobodies, such as the heavy chain, and that llamas make those. So they tried to find different regions of the mutant. They did find that the catalytic activity of the protease was not required, though. So the, uh, you know, the enzyme binding to the spike generates it. Uh, other proteases didn't, but inactive protease still allows for infection. I think that's the important part is this isn't a catalyst, you know, enzyme climatic cleavage. It's the spike binds to it and that induces um, endocytosis. And so antibodies block it. So you could have an antibody of the common cold and sick people, but fundamentally knowing the receptor that leads to infection by an agent of the common cold and starting to figure that out is a pretty good advance in, you know, virology. Very interesting. It's fun to see how fun, fun is not the word, but yeah, how there's so many receptors, so many molecules on the surface of cells that these uh, viruses can hijack to get into the cells. I, I wonder sometimes if, um, if these molecules, why are they chosen? Like, is it because of their uh, distribution in the respiratory epithelium, therefore would make a, a better type of cell to be infected because then you can cough the virus to the next person? What is what is behind the the, the, the which mar, which receptors are chosen by this virus? I think that's a really good question. I don't know. I don't think we know yet. But epithelial origin tends to be a common theme for these. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to move on to the next paper because I don't think you're gonna like it, and that's why I chose it because one of the conclusions I'm pretty sure you're gonna have a you're gonna have an issue with. All right, lay it on. So prepare. So this paper uh, came out in PNAS and um, it's called the total mass number and distribution of immune cells in the human body. First uh, author, Ron Sender, uh, and the uh, corresponding author is Ron Milo from the Weizmann Institute in Israel. And what they did basically is they did this huge kind of meta study looking into a lot of kind of previously uh, existing uh, already existing data uh, to 
come up with a quantification of kind of roughly rough uh, subsets of immune cells uh, in, in, in different organs and different uh, lymphoid and non-lymphoid organs and the blood to kind of characterize and give some kind of numbers to the, uh, the immune system. And I think it was very cool because, you know, sometimes I don't think we, we, we have a good grasp on like the percentage of us that is different parts of us. So basically what they did is, as I mentioned, they, they really dig, dig into the literature. They looked into previous reports. They looked into histology, uh, performing various uh, types of uh, publications. They looked into um, imaging data and they kind of tried to estimate things such as cell density, cell amounts, and for different types of tissues. Uh, they also used something that I thought was very interesting, which is a um, deconvolution-based, so they a methylation atlas based on the convolution of, of, of full tissue uh, methylomes, so to say. So because there are different cells that do have some kind of characteristic methylation, and there is kind of several methods that allow to kind of um, and extrapolate how many cells of different types were in a mix of methylated uh, uh, DNA. Uh, and so they also use this. Uh, so based on the methylation patterns of a sample tissue, uh, they could identify cellular subpopulations, uh, in particular uh, immune cells. And so with this information, they, they did a lot of, kind of statistics and analysis. So I think that's kind of all the, the boring stuff, uh, but they did a lot of kind of tried to put some order into all this data. Um, and they came to a couple of numbers that I'm going to share with you. Uh, so I'm going to quiz you a little bit. How do you, so how many cells do you think they found? How do many do they, do they um, estimate that a reference 73 kilogram man that is like, what, 150 pounds for you uh, has? Because that's a normal-sized man in the Western world. Total, totally normal. I think. I don't know. How much do you, do you weigh? No? Uh, more, more than less? 73 kilos. More than 73 kilos. Well, maybe, maybe the, American, the American average is different. I don't know. Well, uh, that was me. Sorry. So um, give me a number. Total number. immune cells in the body? Yeah. That's yeah. what we're going for. Total immune cells. Yes. Well, I think what we're like what one trillion cells or something. I think is a total number for a human. So I'm gonna. So get, one trillion. No, 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 no. So humans are one trillion cells. So I'm gonna. So that say, is ten. The trillion would be ten to the. So so humans are one trillion. So that's one times ten to the twelve. Ten to the twelve, because trillion does not mean like the word trillion means different things in different languages, sometimes. Okay, so one times ten to the twelve is what humans okay. are supposed to be. Yes, um, roughly. And so I'm going to say immune cells are roughly 10% of the entire body in, in terms of number. Actually, probably more than that, because uh, they're tiny compared to like a muscle cell, which is gigantic. So I'm going to go three times 10 to the 11th. We're 30% by number immune cells, even though by mass, like our muscle cells way outweigh immune cells, but that a muscle cell like goes from your knee to your hip. One cell does. So the size is different. So three well, times 10 to the 11th. Yeah. So according to their calculations, you are missing on one order of magnitude. Uh, so I don't know if they, they do an estimation of a total cell numbers in the body. But I don't think they do. But they they estimate 1.8 times to 12 immune cells in the reference person's body. So I just I just went into the Googles, uh -huh. and the new estimate from old stuff is there's 36 trillion cells in a human male. Okay, so a little bit less than 10 percent. So so my math of about 10 percent, but that I went up, but that was closer. I was just off on the total amount. Yeah. And this is where you're not going to like it. Where do you think most of the immune cells reside? Uh, probably the intestine or probably the mucosal areas totally. Are you sure? Is that your final answer? Well, no, it's probably actually the skin. No. I mean, the answer actually is pretty obvious. Marrow. Yeah. So 
They do. Does that count progenitors and differentiated? Is that all in or is that only differentiated? I don't know how they define the, the cells in the bone marrow. So they, they suggest that the bone marrow contains 7.4 times 10 to the 11 cells. Um, and that, that comprises 40% of all uh, immune cells. I mean, if you count all of the progenitors in that, I totally believe it. Mm. And then they say that another 39% is actually in the lymphatic system, unsurprisingly. And that skin, lungs, and uh, uh, GI tract is only about 3 to 4% of all the cells in the human body, mm. uh, and less than 2% are in the blood. And I think the point that they make is that it's in cell numbers, uh, but oftentimes many of the um, cells that are, maybe in terms of mass, it might be bigger because oftentimes you have uh, um, cells like macrophages, like which are very big, or or, B, or plasma cells, which are a little bit bigger, and then they might actually represent more a little, a little bit more mass. So yeah, what, what else? So. What do they say? So as I mentioned, most of the cells in the bone marrow and the lymphatic system, and actually, interestingly, about 70% of cells in the bone marrow are neutrophils. Well, there's a lot of neutrophils in yeah, there. Yeah, that's not surprising. Well, it's not surprising, I know, but it's I, I always I always ignore the neutrophils, and I think, you know, this shows me that I'm making a mistake. And then I think it's also interesting, of course, uh, they also, you know, bring uh, forward the fact that there's a lot of differences in the distribution of different uh, immune cells. And for example, while macrophages might be a minor fraction of, of the immune cells in tissues such as bone marrow, they become, they are a huge contributor to other tissues, to this immune cells in other tissues, particularly in the liver. So in the liver, macrophages comprise 70% of the immune cell populations. And in the lung, that is, that number apparently is around 40%. So Interesting because also uh, macrophages are a lot larger than lymph uh, leukocytes or lymphocytes and things like that. So they actually, when it comes to mass, they might represent a larger mass uh, uh, in this in this organs. Uh, they, for example, when it comes to the uh, GI, the gastrointestinal tract, seventy percent of plasma cells in the body are there. Also, not surprising given that we have so much, you know, immunoglobulins in the gut. And there's such a strong uh, humoral response uh, over there, so makes sense. And also, when it comes to the um, other cells, for example, mast cells, uh, NK cells, they are are kind of distributed. Uh, they're not in any particular organ more than other cells, like for example, neutrophils, eosinophils, and monocytes, um, basophils, which are mainly found in the bone marrow, are not so much circulating in other places. And um, what I also thought so I thought so was cool. They say they estimate that there is a total of 1.2 kilograms of immune cells in the you know standard adult body. Um, and although the bone marrow and the lymphatic system have most have 40 percent uh, of the of the cell numbers, they have 30 less than 30 percent of the of the mass each because of their uh, they usually smaller smaller cells. And then um, the that the, when it comes to the uh, the the immune uh, the immune system in the gut and in the skin and other tissues, they are about twenty three percent of the total immune cell mass, not necessarily immune cell numbers. Uh, and what I also thought was cool. What what do you want to say? I was gonna say that makes sense, right? Like that the math yeah. and the numbers don't line up necessarily. Yeah, exactly, right? Because and usually is it is the fact that certain cells like macrophages are huge compared to cell, other cells like uh, lymphocytes, which are not that big. Um, and uh, what I so then they 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 kind of extrapolate this to the uh, average uh, female uh, person, uh, and they say about one point five times ten to the twelve immune cells in the reference female uh, for, with about a, a kilogram uh, for a woman of 60 kilos, and uh, that a child has about one times 10 to the 12 immune cells uh, that weigh around 600 grams. I think also they have less of these more heavy cells uh, at their early uh, age. So now you know, I thought, I hope you, you hold these numbers in your head for next you know, cocktail party. You can always bring the, the fun facts. Fair. I will. Now, neutrophils, you know, when people are sick, mm -hmm. uh, the neutrophils mobilizing from their marrow into their blood is one of the main signs of it early on. 
Mm, yeah, because you usually don't find that many in the blood. Right. Mm -hmm. But then they spike. You're like, whoa, where'd those come from? The marrow. They were sitting there all, all along. They were there the whole time. <laughs> yeah. So, well, uh, that was very, it's a very cool, I mean, um, it's a fun, it's a fun paper to watch uh, to, to, to kind of bring forward like these numbers that you're like, huh, 1.2 kilos. It's kind of cool. It's kind of cool. In a below average sized male. In a below average sized male. Exactly. All right. Well, to keep on the theme of uh, immunological markers or sending, understanding some numbers behind things versus, say, mechanism, uh, this is immunology responses to gut bacteria associated with time to diagnosis and clinical response to T-cell-directed -cell therapy for type 1 diabetes prevention. First author is Quinn Hu Ji. Last author is Jane Danska. It's in Science Translational Medicine. And it came out uh, the 25th of October. All right, so this is what's cool here, folks. There is a trial of, um, there is this study called, let me get the acronym. It has, it has a, you know, like all clinical trials has a very fun acronym, the TrialNet 10 or T10 study. Small study, but they used a anti-CD3 antibody to called tepilizumab in patients with early, with early step, you know, develop, I mean, not early onset, but, you know, early signs of type one diabetes to ablate their T cells. And this trial showed that you can extend the time to diabetes out by several years. Diagnosis of 32.5 months. So almost three years delayed diagnosis with this drug. But then they looked at some other stuff from this trial. And that's, what's really cool. And so here it is, Brenda, all at once, and then I'll wait for your reaction. There is something called, you know, anti-commensal antibodies in your body. IgA, IgG1, IgG2. IgG2 anti-commensal antibodies to specific bacteria are predictive of how well you will respond to therapy. And if you didn't get therapy, also your prognosis. So... This is the antibodies you had before you started on therapy that remain the same throughout therapy. Do not change after therapy. And they do not affect any of the antibodies found during the disease state, right? So, you know, there's all these antibodies that are associated with diabetes. None of that changes. The only thing that matters is do you have these antibodies at a high level or a low level? And if you have them at a high level, to specific microbiota, which I will give the names for in just a second. If you have them to specific microbiota, you are more likely to be a responder to the therapy. So one of these is Bifidobactam longum. Another one is Efficalis. And another one that is interesting, D. invisius. D. invisius only matters depending on your HLA type. So the effect on that one is restricted HLA type that you have at baseline. And these predict your response to a therapy and your general trajectory of disease to begin with. And there you go. And then they did it and they did another test case with other people who didn't get therapy and looked at their predicted responses and they saw the same story essentially. So essentially the it predicted the entire response, which is crazy. So you're, are you telling me the bacteria are giving me diabetes? Is that it? No, I'm telling you your antibodies to the bacteria because your immune system is naughty, is predictive of you having worse outcomes. But similarly, anti-CD3 therapy is better for you in this case. Because then I guess there's more of T cells that are being targeted by the CD3. There you have a kind of a... No, your total immune cells aren't different. It's just... If you have a lot of these antibodies, you're more likely to have worse disease, you know, faster onset diabetes, type one diabetes, but the therapy, the anti-CD3 therapy works better in you than people with slower onset who have lower levels of these antibodies. Right. But the T cells are in there. I mean, those T cells have, somebody has to be helping those B cells make those antibodies. T cells are absolutely naughty little suckers involved in the yeah. disease. 
because the anti-CD3 antibody prevents the diabetes, but in people with, particularly people with a lot of antimicrobial antibodies. Wow. It's just... It's not uh, a how many levels? It could be a biomarker, right? It could be a biomarker yeah. that if you're making anti-commensals, you're probably also more likely to hate your own pancreas, maybe? That's also a way. Okay. Yeah. So it could be correlative. It's not necessarily causative. It's just that if you have this as a marker, you're more amiable to therapy. And biomarkers really matter in clinical therapy these days. Yeah. So it's a quite the good biomarker. All right. Well, it's very interesting. Very cool that they can they can really delay the onset of, of diabetes with this treatment. Three years is quite a long time. Right. All right. Like, you know, 10% of some of our lives, almost-ish. 10%. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not, not for long. Um, we have a paper about T-Rex. Like, you know, I think it's a good way of ending this, this segment. Jason is shaking his head. Um. So in this this publication is called um, Resident Regulatory T-cells Reflect the Immune History of Individual Lymph Nodes. First author, Anne uh, Kaminsky, from uh, uh, corresponding authors, Oliver Pabst, uh, from the University of Aachen, and Milas Uger from uh, the University of Würzburg in Germany. And this, in this uh, publication, they used an interesting mouse model, sorry, published in Science Immunology. They use a mouse model uh, to study resident T-cells in the lymph nodes uh, using a reporter mouse that has um, a reporter that expresses a histone H2B fused photoconvertible protein called Dendra2 which uh, can be photoconverted using violet or ultraviolet light, uh, which basically allows to kind of shine the light on the lymph node and mark all the T-Rex in there. Um, and then you can see uh, whether those cells are staying there or not. And then you can define resident T-Rex based on the fact that they're still there in the lymph node after uh, 24 hours they do. They cannot do much longer because this um, uh, frequency of the, the market, they use this uh, D-red uh, uh, protein. It's not super stable, I guess, but so but they are uh, probably underestimating a little bit the the, the, the amount of positive cells in that, that are staying behind, but they can use this in a way to show that these cells stay there. They are in the lymph node, they're not going anywhere. I think we have this idea that often lymph node is kind of a passing as a, as a pit stop on your way from to whatever, and they they argue in this in this paper that actually you have a population of the focus on the T regs that actually are uh, still there, and they show that even eight weeks after photoconversion, there the photoconverted lymph nodes still contain uh, higher frequencies of these um, fluorescent positive uh, T regs compared to other unconverted lymph nodes and the spleen, showing that there's like these cells in a particular lymph node, there are certain cells that have a tendency to stay there. And so this is how kind of they define residency in a more of, uh, not so much on the markers that they're expressing, but on the fact that they're actually there after X amount of time. And um, they show that they are not really, they're not short-lived cells. There they are these effects, they're, uh, they're resident there and they, they stay, um, they don't necessarily express the, the, the what we consider traditional residency markers like CD69 and KS67, um, but they do seem to represent a po distinct population of memory cells in the lymph node. So they do a lot of assays looking into uh, showing that the cells uh, there, they're comparing them with, with the, the conventional cells in the lymph nodes, uh, showing some things about the, the kind of the residence memory like phenotype that they that they have, whether they have it or not. And they show that uh, CD69 and K67 is not sufficient to, to characterize this population. There is some heterogeneity within this population. 
they don't all express CD103 or CD101, which are also uh, usually associated with, with tissue residency. And I guess on the one hand, I'm not super surprised because I mean, tissue lymph node residency, does it have to be the same as tissue residency, non-lymphoid tissue residency? Um, maybe maybe it's not necessarily the case. Uh, but in general, they kind of characterize this 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 um these cells and they and they they seem to find that um they express lower levels of, of certain genes that are usually associated with egress uh from the lymph node, so KLF2 and S1P or one. Um, so this is probably why they are sticking in the lymph node and they're not leaving the lymph node, as you would expect from usually naive cells are very keen on circulating, but not this uh, resident uh, of uh, T-Rex. Uh, they don't seem to, they also use some markers that are used to differentiate, you know, thymus derived from peripherally induced T-Rex, they use neuropilin, helios, and rorgama T. And they don't find differences between the resident and circulating uh, um, uh, T-Rex, effector T-Rex, when it comes to helios, so these, these helios, neuropilin, or raw expression. So it seems that either, uh, you know, um, peripherally induced or thymus-derived T-Rex can acquire this, this migratory property and this, this residency uh, in the lymph node. Um, it doesn't seem, they don't seem to need specific T, uh, TCR um, signaling to stay in the in the lymph node. So I think that's also interesting to know because T-Rex usually do need, they also are kind of used to receiving T, uh, TCR signaling, but it doesn't seem to be in the, indispensable for their residency in this lymph node. Uh, and when it comes to a repertoire, they also seem to have a distinct TCR repertoire, which might in a way reflect which lymph node it is whether it's a lymph node uh, uh, close to which tissue. And they do some experiments with mesentery lymph nodes, and they show that there's differences in the repertoires between lymph nodes located in different areas of the of the mesenteric uh, kind of mesenteric lymph nodes. For those who don't remember, they look like little, you know, little um, uh, beads next to each other. They're long, and they can be kind of uh, draining from different parts of the intestine. Um, so they do see differences in the TCR repertoires in, in, in the different parts of the mesenteric lymph nodes and the, these resident cells, uh, these cells residing in different lymph nodes. So I thought it was pretty interesting because I don't think we usually think about, uh, yeah, residency in lymph nodes. I often think of lymph nodes as passing uh, areas, but there seems to be this population that... Uh, by you know the facto is staying there because they stained it and it's still there several weeks after. So um, what exactly that means and whether that really translates to the human situation is unclear. These are mouse experiments, uh, but yeah, you know T-Rex. It would make sense that they're there, you know, taking hold of specific lymph nodes to keep immune responses. After all, immune responses would be initiating lymph nodes. So if you have them already there, it makes sense that they stay stick there. Uh, to prevent, you know, conventional cells from going crazy. Hmm. So this is really just describing the mechanism by which they stay in their cage. Yeah. Despite all my rage, I'm still a regulatory T cell in a cage. <laughs> no, they are the cage. They keep them. They, they, they. Well, they have. No, they're they're kept in the cage to make sure that nothing happens in the cage. I guess. Yeah. To keep to keep the rage in the cage, they stay in the cage. That's fair. <laughs> There you go. They're like cops in the prison, in the yeah. cell with the people. Fair sure. Enough. Sure. Sure. Let's go. We're just going to drive yeah. this analogy into the ground because I won't let go. All right. No. Well, you know, in a second, we're going to be speaking to Dr. Sophia Liu at the Ragon Institute here. But before we get to that, are you looking for in depth information on cell separation? Download the cell separation ebook from Stem Cell Technologies. It is a practical guide on everything you need to know about cell isolation techniques. It includes a collection of protocols. Visit stemcell.com slash cell hyphen separation. For our second part of the podcast, we are, of course, joined by a great researcher. Today, we have Dr. Sophia Liu. She is core faculty and early independence fellow at the Reagan Institute of Mass General, MIT and Harvard. And I'm very excited to talk to her about uh, some really interesting uh, research she has done on understanding T-cell and B-cell development kind of in a spatial uh, dimension of really cool research. And also I have to, I would like to also 
ask her a little bit about her, her career. She is, uh, as you say, a very early independent, uh, a very young PI, I think, of, in, a very an inspiration. So it will be very interesting to hear about her research and her uh, career so far. So Dr. Liu, thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, thank you so much for having me. I've, I've listened to a few of the episodes on the podcast and uh, over the last few years, and I never expected to be a part of it. So it's really, really exciting. And I was just thinking earlier that the whole idea of a podcast is quite thrilling. It's like the nakedness of doing a chalk talk, but but worse in a way. <laughs> uh, so I'm really looking forward to talking about some immunology uh, with you folks. And as for being young, I had a rotation student the other day comment about how I had a gray hair. And so I, you know, I, young PIs can feel old too. <laughs> yes. Oh, my, my, my hairline receded far before I was your age. So I, I, empathize, <laughs> I empathize with this. Um, that's what grad school does to you. It ages. Yeah. Gen Z brutal, you know? <laughs> yeah. Just tell him, wait until you're done with your PhD and we'll talk. Oh yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so why don't we get right uh, down to it? So I uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about your research interest. And I think I was very impressed by uh, your late, uh, fairly recent paper that you published in Immunity, in which you're doing spatial mapping of TISA receptors. And you're using this in a, a, a number of different contexts, both in, in cancer and in thymus uh, development. And you're having... Uh, so. I, I thought it was really cool because oftentimes we don't pay enough attention to the, the where the TCRs cells uh, are because it's hard. <laughs> uh, so why don't we start talking a little bit about that? Why do you think it's important to to map T cells in space? Yeah, so I, I will say I'm an engineer and, and biophysicist by training. So almost certainly you know more immunology than me. Um, but as as someone who's really focused on building tools, I was really interested in looking at T cells because they're in a way at the core of many of these tenets of immunology. Um, and so, you know, abstracting immunology, taking a fun step back, um, basically all of the research questions that we have try to hit at the idea of how do we generate so much diversity? How do we generate immunological memory? How do we kill things? And how do we distinguish between self and non-self? And you know, at the heart of these questions is, is something T-cell related. And so I was really interested in, in building a tool that could let us see where these cells are in tissues because fundamentally immune cells need to physically interact with target cells to elicit some change. Um, and so that that was the part that was really exciting for me. I was doing some single cell work before, but um, these questions of where are these cells, how are they affecting other cells, sort of led me down this path of, of building tools to look at cells and tissues. So being a an, an earlier life a biophysicist by training at a different institution up the road from where you're at out in Brandeis, uh, I, I love I love when you can use fancy uh, science magic to understand things. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your specific science magic. So what are the tools you're using that let you do the work you're doing? And we, we can dive a little deep here and talk floor fours and probes and Ooh. all that you're doing to get stuff going. So fire away. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Um, so I guess again, I think people ask why you know is RNA so popular of a space, right? And it's because it's so easy to sequence and read out RNA in a way that proteins we just can't do with. And the bulk of, of my lab's work and, and my previous work has been trying to use sequencing uh, and associated you know, sequencing technologies via in situ microscopy or standard NGS sequencing uh, to be able to learn more about cells. And so a lot of what we do is, is basic molecular biology, trying to identify these relatively lowly expressed sequences and uh, using the information gained from sequencing to learn more about these cell states. Um, early on in my in my grad work, I was doing some interesting work with, with multiplexing fluorophores, but nowadays we, we mostly just uh, sort of do standard DNA sequencing or RNA sequencing. So maybe we can talk a little bit about what you have found, uh, what kind of insights you have learned so far about uh, being able, because in this in this particular, uh, uh, the latest uh, research that you publish in which you do TCR sequencing, uh, you so if I understand correctly, you are 
you have a slide and you are able to identify individual clones and, and then locate them spatially. And this gives you insight about clonal expansion, about kind of organization within a tissue, within a tumor, within uh, a germinal center. So what are the kinds of insights that you have learned uh, that will kind of help us understand the way that T cells function? And I mean, as I said, they are such a crossroads in in, in, in immunology and then the fact that they can see information. I, I love them because of that. I think that makes them so great. So what do we know? What have we learned in that sense? Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of potential for learning more about human immunology with these methods. Mm -hmm. um, and so you brought up germinal centers. And so one uh, question that we're interested in is, is how these immune cells uh, exist in different germinal centers. Do we have different clones? Do we have clonal dominance in germinal centers uh, on both the T cell and the B cell side? And with mouse models, you can if you're a highly skilled lab, you can do some beautiful intravital uh, microscopy and look at these cells and, and tag them. But with humans, it's it's really difficult to do that. And so um, we can start taking these, these static measurements by taking tissue sections and then look at the actual T-cell clones that are in these different germinal centers and make statistical inferences about how these cells might be dynamically navigating in these, uh, in these terminal centers based off of the composition uh, of these clones. So that's, I think that's one example, which is um, we can start to identify these distinct immune niches um, with these spatial methods in a way that was lost before when you would dissociate these tissues. Can you talk a little bit about how you're doing that? So what, how are you able to capture? I've done laser capture micro dissection with caveats included. So how are you guys doing that here with the combination of it sounds like low read is important but also you know you got to catch it from the right cell if you blast the whole tissue obviously it's just a pile so how are you getting that level of resolution yeah so uh we take these these beads they're about 10 microns in size which is about the size of a t-cell t-cells are maybe five to seven and we uh basically glue them onto a slide um, and they're glued in this very tightly packed three millimeter diameter circle. Hopefully the audience is visualizing this. Um, and then what you do is you take the tissue samples and you section them pretty thin. Uh, they're frozen tissue samples. And then you put the tissue sample onto this array of beads. And as the, um, the, the tissue melts, the RNA will exit the sample and bind to these uh, single stranded DNA uh, oligos that are on the bead that have poly T tails to capture poly A tail of mRNA. So um, the, the reason why this is a spatial method is that each of these beads also contains a, a spatial bead barcode. So we can, when we do the downstream sequencing, we can say, oh, we got this RNA in this location. Um, and we can do some additional enrichment to get the TCR and the BCR sequences. That is so cool. <laughs> No, I like it because uh, when I think about of like spatial, uh, sometimes there's other kind of uh, platforms that use like laser, uh, like they, they point a laser to a specific spot and then they they, they acquire, for example, these uh, mass spec uh, 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 models, which you have basically the whole slide and then you just use a laser to pick up a small point. But it's not like this. This is basically you're imprinting it over a series of of, of, of probes and mm -hmm. then you're using some kind of UM, uh, UMI, I guess, to to identify the 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 transcripts that are binding to a specific bead beneath the, the tissue. I think that's that's really cool. But I guess probably sensitivity and things like that are probably uh, an, an issue, as with like single cell. Uh, exactly. I think it's very comparable to to single cell. Mm -hmm. And so, what is the what do you think is the next steps uh, of technologies like this, um, where, what kind of, what would you apply? What are the next steps in your lab or you think in the field of using these very sophisticated uh, sequencing methods to uh, discern the, 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 the position of a particular cell in, in, a, in, a, in the environment in which it is? What do you think are the next steps or what are you looking into now? Again, I think you know, single cell was this incredible advance for being able to answer really like two basic questions, which is 
um, what are the cell types that are in our samples of interest and um, how many of each cell type are there, right? Um, and then the advent of spatial technology has been able to answer where are these cells and tissues and how might they be interacting with other cells. And I think for us, the next big step is trying to understand the dynamics temporally of these interactions. So um, we started looking at some uh, contexts of aging and aging immunity in the thymus to try to see not only you know, we observe cell interactions at a certain time point, but if we compare a young thymus to an old thymus, what are these dramatic cell interaction changes that are happening and what do they mean for our aging immune systems? And so I, I think the next big step that we're thinking about is incorporating temporal readouts as well uh, to better understand the importance of cell interactions in, in immunology. So I wanted to go back to these beads. Yeah, uh, let's do it. That's because that seems to be, you know, I'm stuck on them, pun intended here. Devil's <laughs> on the details. <laughs> Biophysics, it's magic and I like magic. Okay. No. Um, so is that the hard, was that the hard part to figure out? Was it, was the hard part, like, how do I get a 10 micron bead to have poly a tails on it on a consistent way Then when I splat it down and then you realize that as it melts, it like sucks it out. Do you have to like add chemicals to the frozen tissue to get it to melt when it thaws? Does it just do this? Are these beads like ultra expensive and hard to get or was this literally just putting two to two together and actually not that hard to create just no one thought of it before or all of the above wow that's a lot of questions uh, tell me <laughs> so, about the beads like this yes. seems like you know key here yes so i will say when, when i started um this a lot of the details of this was were fleshed out by by sam rodriguez and bob stickles and and um from what i understand the difficult part about the beads is the density of the oligos on the surface. And so if you if you don't have enough DNA, you, you get low capture. And often when you order beads from a company, they're not that densely packed. Um, we've done some comparisons about uh, between these ordered beads and now, you know, they're making the beads in-house, um, sort of chemically synthesizing them. Um, and the the efficiency of capture is several several times higher in the in the beads made in-house. So I think you do hit on an important point, which is that the quality of the beads is really important um, to being able to capture enough RNA. Um, and and what I worked on uh, was on this on this TCR sort of low expression transcript side of it. It's even more important that you have these very densely packed beads because if you, you miss out in capturing them in that initial step, you'll never be able to recover them in downstream sequencing, even if you amplify. Um, and so for us, uh, trying to figure out ways to a little bit of optimization on the on the tissue side as well, you want sort of fresher samples. You don't want samples that have been frozen for, for a decade. Um, but really it was just figuring out um, now that we have beads that are capturing the TCRs, how we can enrich for them and different methods for, for amplifying them in a library. I want to kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about so your your career and and the, and the way that your um, your research uh, I guess because you're maybe not so much uh, you you just mentioned you're originally more a biophysicist than an immunologist and so I guess that a lot of the projects you're carrying on are you're collaborating with your, with with other researchers and of course your particular geographic position is excellent for that kind of uh, uh, for that kind of work. But so I mentioned before when we started talking that you are you're one of those people that went right after grad school to have your own uh, research crew. And I think that's something that we don't see a lot nowadays, although I, I do see that several uh, institutes are offering this position at least a bit more uh, visible. So maybe we, we can share with us a little bit of your experience of moving from being a PhD student uh, directly to uh, having your own group. And what do you think has been the main challenges so far? Uh, and also, how do you think you have uh, used your knowledge here? You're mostly uh, trying to collaborate or have, how, how have you found your way collaborating with other researchers in order to to apply this 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 kind of uh, platforms that you're developing, yeah. So I guess there's there's two sort of origin stories of this of my experience in this early independence path, and and the first is that 
you know, when I graduated and or was about to graduate, I was actually so excited about doing a postdoc. I think a postdoc is a time where you're highly skilled, you're able to run projects. And I was so thrilled at the aspect of doing that. Um, and then I was at a conference uh, where I, I'm actually, I met Ron Germain and we were talking about diversity in science. And he brought up this, this paper um, that I thought was so interesting. It was this um, paper by the NIH in I think 2007. Um, and they basically surveyed women from the transition between postdoc to faculty positions and men as well at the NIH. And there were two sets of questions. The first was um, questions that were like, how are your skills at designing experiments, you know, doing controls and analyzing your data, rate, rate from one to five, so on. And the other set was, how confident are you in getting a tenure track job and, and succeeding to get tenure? And it turns out that when you control for women and men responding the same way about their skills, women uh, basically say they have much lower confidence in their careers. Um, and when Ron told this to me, I was fascinated because you know, I was so excited about doing a postdoc. That's all I was thinking about. And that opened my mind to thinking more like, you know, I I have a vision for what I want my lab to be like. I know I want what I want to do. Um, I'm so excited about these tools that I'm building. I'm going to pursue this. And and it encouraged a sense of confidence in me that I, I really want to share with, um, I think everybody needs a little bit of confidence and um, especially folks in science when we're not always the best at selling ourselves. And so that I think is how I got uh, excited about the idea of, of starting my own lab. Um, and the other part of it was, you know, my advisor was an, was an early fellow as well, the Broad, and seeing it happen made it seem less scary. Uh, being his first graduate student and starting things up made it more tangible. And um, I think a lot of the unknown can be quite daunting to people. So when I when I actually started you know, for the, it's been like two months. Um, I think the most challenging part for me has been uh, knowing when to pause and take a break. Do you guys know who Haruki Murakami is? He's like, he's this author. Um, he like writes a lot of fiction. Um, yeah, he, he he's written like Kafka on the Shore and so on. And he has this book about running and he talks about how um, basically when you finish every day, it's important to finish at a point where you're still excited for the next day. Um, and I, I like that a lot as it applies to research because, you know, in the first two months, I've had this alarm on my phone where I need to go home at 8 p.m. If I, if I, even if I want to stay later, I just have to get up and leave, close my laptop. And then, you know, sometimes I'll even say out loud to myself, like, I, I'm happy with the work that I've done today. I can go home and be excited for tomorrow. So it's not the challenge that I, I thought I would have. You know, everyone said, oh, hiring will be hard because you're so young. And I've been very fortunate to recruit some really great people. Um, and so the surprising challenge for me, I think, is just pacing myself. It's it's a it's a marathon, not a sprint, I guess, as they say. And then on the on the collaboration side, um, I think working with people has been one of the the joys of of science uh, for me. Um, it's I think the source of where really creativity comes into play when you can have two seemingly distinct areas of expertise come together to find a really nice overlap. And and you're right that Boston is great for this. It's it's so dense in scientists. I go on the subway and I, I hear people talking about chemokines and I'm like, yes. Um, <laughs> and um you know it's it's a great it's a great place for that. And um I've been very fortunate to work with some some really nice people and honestly that's the that's the most important thing I think when I try to find people to work with. Lots of people have nice samples, have really great questions, but but finding nice people to work with uh, is the thing that you know brings me joy in science. So can you talk a little bit about the special program? You have this early investigator independence thing. I, I think many people have no idea what those words mean put together at all. No, that's, yeah, I, I forget because my advisor, Faye, was a fellow. And so it's been sort of uh, almost like ingrained in my training that that was part of my experience working with a fellow. So um, in the U.S., there are maybe around like 30 or so positions a year. And uh, the idea is that they take folks out of graduate school and they provide them with a startup fund to be able to hire a couple of people, to fund their own research. And there's usually a time constraint of three to five years or so. Um, for some of these positions, they are on 
some track to getting professor position, um, but I would say the vast majority of them are, are not on that track. Uh, it's more just to support young scientists and their crazy ideas. And um, there's been uh, some analyses on, on the outcomes of these scientists compared to folks who do the traditional path. Um, and there isn't any uh, sort of worse outcome for these early independence fellows. Um, they're they're cited quite similarly in their career. Um, it's just it's just a different path, and I wouldn't say it's it's better or worse. I've talked to many people about it and having experienced it. Um, it's a lot of work. Uh, it is a lot of fun, but um, it's definitely for people who are really focused on trying to build something uh, straight from graduate school. It sounds like a really great opportunity. Uh, if you as you said, if you already have the idea in your mind uh crystallized enough you just need that support right that that funding and that uh maybe some training maybe some administrative help i don't know that can be also quite daunting i think probably more daunting than the science itself oh yeah absolutely like the science you know i i know that we can do it but finding the right support i think is so essential and logistically it's also it's it's a very different path and in a lot of ways science scientific community can be very resistant to that path, right? And so when you're evaluating people who haven't done a traditional postdoc, I think, you know, it can be a little bit harder down the line. But um, for me, it's it's just been, it's been a good time. Folks at the Reagan are, are really incredible, uh, very supportive. And that's what made me feel very confident in, in starting this. All right. So next up, I guess for you is uh, finishing, getting your stuff together, uh, get it and, and, no, I guess you're you're two months in, fairly still a lot to do. Um, and continue looking into interactions of T cells and immune cells in tissues. And um you mentioned so you just mentioned about your some work on, on thymus and aging. Um what what do you think uh so when you say old thymus, what are we talking? Are we talking like 30 old, 60 old, do we even have a thymus when we're 60 anymore? In the human situation, how does it compare with, with, with mice or with other better known models? Yeah, so in humans, our peak thymus is around like 16. And then it has a half-life of just about the same, like 16 or 17 years. So at around age 30, your, your thymus is about half what it was. And it's replaced with fat. And yeah, it's very sad. I, I see your sad faces. That's that's me and my birthday every year. Um, <laughs> and so I, I think we're interested in this because of what the implications are for immunology as we get older, right? And our immune systems. And there was a great paper recently um, from a collaborator of ours for, from David Scadden's lab, um, the Nuclear Journal of Medicine, where they find that removing the thymus can increase your all-cause mortality and uh, risk of cancer. In, in, in people. And I, I, from what I've seen with collaborators up until uh, this point, often thymus would just be discarded as tissue that was in the way of the heart, right? Um, I know <laughs> the, the scary face the is real. Face. This, is, no. this is the real, the real Halloween fear. Um, but <laughs> so, so yeah, I think we're really interested in, in one, how this process is happening. And two, can we figure out ways to repair the thymus to enable it to generate T cells with age? And there are actually some really interesting contexts where this happens. Um, so during pregnancy, the thymus will actually shrink. And then after giving birth, the thymus will grow back. Um, and uh, people think this is in part because it's important for mothers to, to tolerate uh, paternal antigens in the fetus. But this regeneration process is really interesting to me. And trying to look at these context of regeneration as ways to potentially think about regenerating thymus in the elderly to strengthen vaccine response, um, I think could be really cool. But more generally, I think there may be like three sources of aging. Um, the first is, are there changes to the original progenitors that are leading to an aged phenotype? The second is this organ context. Do we see changes in the thymus or in the bone marrow that, that make it difficult to mature these cells? And the third is in the periphery, where maybe repeated exposure to things like cytomegalovirus can constrain our immune systems with age. And uh, for now, we're interested in the tissue context, but hopefully we can we can expand more broadly in the future. I wonder if it's on purpose that we, this, this, this degradation of the thymus, whether it's because we never made it that old, you know, by, in, in evolution that it does, didn't really matter. No, no, we did. So people who made it past like, 
early adulthood often lived into their 60s even thousands, well, they didn't have children no they did they had children and then made it to their 60s yeah but not but not after like their third well maybe their 30s would make sense Oh, yeah. I think this is super interesting. And I will say there are some like interesting exceptions. There are some species of sharks that have really like prolonged thymus size with age. Um, and there's some papers about like ectopic thymus. So basically uh, alternative sites to to generate T cells. Um, but I think this is yeah, I think this is a super interesting area and has been the subject of many late night conversations. <laughs> that I'm intrigued. Maybe you can just grow on your thymus. Like, oh, you you're having your responses to vaccines are getting pretty pretty low lately. There's gonna we could just insert your new thymus in your thigh or something like they they grow the organs. Yeah, there are there are companies that are trying to do that now. So maybe maybe we'll see in the next few decades. Yeah. But you know, see, I, I always say after 30, it all comes downhill from now. People don't believe me, <laughs> but now I have a very specific example. So you, um, yeah, just beware. It comes it comes to a lot of time. Out With age comes wisdom. So looking okay, forward well, to there that. There we go. Something positive <laughs> here. Come on. I'm sitting here being like, some of us are in our fourth decade. You're very wise, Jason. Very wise. Right, exactly. <laughs> don't you forget that, Brenda. I'm the wise one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would say luckily our, our peripheral diversity does a pretty good job for us actually up until like 50, 60 ish. So you have you have a couple of good decades left for you. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> you know what? This just 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 end this here uh, on that note. Put me out to pasture already. We'll take you to a farm upstate in a couple of decades, don't worry. <laughs> um so why don't we why don't we uh go to the last part of our uh conversation jason do you want to do uh, the honors sure, i can still remember it um so you know we always try to do a little fun question here so for you if you weren't uh doing all this cool biophysics magic what would you uh be doing instead well um i i really like space i think trying to figure out ways to terraform other planets would be really exciting and I think actually, well, this interest in space has come from reading a lot of science fiction. I'm really um, inspired by like Isaac Asimov's career, where he was a biochemist and a professor, but also sort of pivoted to really focusing on on the science fiction writing. And so maybe science fiction writer, maybe science fiction, actual science scientist, I guess still a scientist, but a different kind of science, which I think would be very exciting. All right. I got to ask, have you played the board game Terraforming Mars? I have. It's so much fun. Highly recommend. Not sponsored. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a very fun. And I guess you've read The Martian and all those. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just want to say that I'm also a big fan of Isaac Asimov and also very much appreciate his his career uh, uh, trajectory. Uh, and so I think uh, 100%. Nice. I highly recommend a series that most people haven't heard of called the, uh, the first one's called The Unincorporated Man. Hmm. So the solar system's colonized. Someone from our age cryopreserves himself with a deadly disease and is a billionaire, multi-billionaire, and is only sent and is sent into the and is preserved until there's a cure for it. So he wakes up like a hundred years later into this new society, and it's ultra capitalistic in that every person has shares of themselves. Your parents get a partial ownership, and you have to auction off your shares to fundraise. Want to go to college? Shares of the institution you go to, so on and so forth. Well, he has is unincorporated because he was born before that and all the laws are still on the books. And he also has a bunch of old earth artifacts like with him, like baseballs worth tons of money. So he's ultra rich in the future and unincorporated. Enter science fiction. It's a hard sci-fi, right? So it's like, you know, no faster light travel, but there's mining of the asteroid belts and stuff. And what do you do with a dude who's not a corporation in a world where literally every person's a corporation in science fiction land? Very interesting. American future dystopia. <laughs> and science, that sounds really it's cool. It's very interesting. Unincorporated man. It has a little bit of feel like the expanse to it. Oh, I love the expanse. Yes. We should do a science fiction podcast. Sounds fun. Then we should we should we should invite, as we mentioned before, the, the, the host of our sister podcast, the Stemza podcast. Arun. Oh yeah. Space Arun science. is very much into space. So like like sends experiments into space into it and spoke to yeah. Cameron Harris about it. Do stem cells grow in space? I don't know. He'll find out. As a, someone who studies like spatial biology, I'm always missing out on the on the fun space. 
<laughs> yeah, special, not that space. The, I not mean, that like, space. The, 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 the organization, a spatial organization. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's like being a doctor, but not that kind of doctor, <laughs> the, the PhD kind of doctors. Like You can just do both. Why in Porque no los dos? Like you, of course. See, well, so you can do this and can do space science at some point. It can happen. All right. On that note, uh, it was such a pleasure uh, talking to you, uh, Sofia. Thank you so much for, for uh, being today on the podcast. Uh, and uh, good luck with, with, well, continuing your research and building up your team. And we'll see what comes up next. Awesome. Thank you so much. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at @immunopodcast or via email info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. See you next time. <laughs>